Please listen to the words found in Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a, in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches. This is the background to the letters of the seven churches. Right before the letters begin, the last statement Jesus makes is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Of all the imagery Jesus could use, the image he uses to describe the church is a lamp. The basic function of a lamp is to give light. And the basic purpose of the church is to shine. And we shine by reflecting Christ in our words and our deeds. It's like Jesus points to a lamp and says to the church, This is you. This is what the church is meant to look like. So we have to keep this image in our minds as we read the seven letters, this becomes the overarching purpose of all the letters and it's the overarching theme of our sermon series. Every church is called to shine. The letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are calling the churches to be what they were meant to be, a church that shines and keeps shining to the very end. All of the churches share this same basic calling to shine, and yet each of them have different strengths, shortcomings, and dangers that they face in living it out. And through the seven churches, through the seven letters, Christ encouraged the churches in their strengths, corrects them in their shortcomings, and warns them of the, of the dangers they face in living this calling out to shine. 
The calling to shine in the church is always in danger. There's different dangers that the churches face. I think three main dangers that we see in these letters. For some of the seven churches, the danger is that they would hide the light because of persecution. You see, the more you shine, the more you draw attention to yourself. And so the temptation is to hide your light so that you won't face the hostility. It's so interesting that Matthew 5.16, that we know when Jesus says, Let your light so shine that people might see it and give glory to the Father in heaven, that that verse is in the context of persecution. In the context of persecution, Jesus is telling the disciples, Let your light shine. Because the temptation is to hide it. And so to some of these churches, Jesus says essentially, don't give up. Don't hide your light. It will be worth it. For others of these churches, their calling to shine is in danger because they are losing their contrast with the world around them. They are beginning to so adopt the fallen attitudes and actions of the world around them that there's no longer any difference between them and their environment. And so the danger is that they'll stop shining without contrast and light no longer shines. If the stars were dark gray, there's no way we would see them. So Christ has strong words for these churches. He calls them to stop compromising their integrity And to live differently. And then for still others of these churches, their calling to shine is in danger because it's growing faint. It's progressively fading because they are missing some vital component that would sustain their light. And their light is becoming more and more weak and dim. And this is the case for the church in Ephesus. For this first church to receive a letter from Christ, and the church that we will be looking at today. Something is missing in the church in Ephesus. Do you know that feeling that something is missing? Sometimes you know it, and then other times you're completely unaware. It reminds me of a trip Lisa and I went on two years ago. We are going to drive to the Grand Canyon, and we were going to camp right at the rim of the Grand Canyon. We were so excited. We, we drove because we love to drive together, and we just packed our car to the brim with stuff. We had CDs, we had snacks, uh, we had our sleeping bags, we had our pillows, we had our hiking boots, we had our flashlights, our backup flashlights, our batteries, our backup batteries to our backup flashlights. We had everything. Vitamins, we brought vitamins. We, we, we thought of everything. And then hours into the trip, we looked at each other and we said, we forgot the tent. We forgot the major thing that we needed. And so we kind of, made, we kind of resolved between one another that we would just stop at a store and buy the cheapest tent we could find. And so at Walmart, the cheapest tent ended up being a junior Boy Scout tent which was four feet by five feet. And so if I was in real estate, I would tell you that it ended up being very cozy. In their journey as a church, Ephesus had remembered so many little things, but they had forgotten the major thing that they needed. 
For Lisa and I, the result was a very memorable experience. But for Ephesus, it was much more serious. What they had forgotten was so serious that their very existence as a church was at stake. Like turning down gas on a stove, their light as a church was so dim, it was about to go out. So what is missing in the church in Ephesus? Jesus will address this, but first he highlights what the church is doing well. His letter to the church in Ephesus is not all negative because their example is not all negative. They have truly captured some of the things Christ is looking for in a church. So with, as with most of the seven churches, Jesus points out their strengths before pinpointing their shortcomings. The same is true here. So the letter of, to the church in Ephesus can be broken down into two basic parts. What Christ commends and what Christ corrects. What Christ commends. Interesting, every time I, I wrote this in the Word document, Word would highlight it and say, I got it wrong. They wanted me to say what Christ commands. But what Christ commends, what he sees as excellent. If you're not already there, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. The first section that we'll read together is found in verses 1 through 3. We read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. This section opens up with a somewhat strange formula to write the letter to the angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The one writing the letter on behalf of Jesus is John, the same author as the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple who is now in his 70s or 80s. And he had been banished to an, a barren island called Patmos by the emperor Domitian. But what about the angel? It seems strange, and, and there's, there's a lot of different views about this, but I think the best one is the straightforward one. It's referring to a heavenly being. And what it does is it reminds us that the local church is in the middle of a spiritual reality, and Christ is intervening on our behalf. And since angels in the book of Revelation always function as the go-between from heaven to earth, it also reminds us that this letter has origins in heaven. It might be written by John, delivered by a human messenger, and read in the church by a human representative, but it is essentially a letter sent from heaven to earth. That's the weighty authority that it bears. And then it moves straight into the introduction. Each one of these letters has, a, has an introduction and they're like different snapshots taken from different angles of that opening vision of Christ in chapter 1. And the snapshot here is this majestic vision of Jesus holding 
the seven stars in his hand and walking among the lampstands. The picture is worth a thousand words. Jesus is holding the stars, the angels, in his right hand. I think we could give a whole sermon on this first verse. The the imagery here of Jesus holding the stars in his right hand is an image of absolute power. I'm reminded of Matthew 16, 18. I'll read it to you. It says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This image is communicating that Christ is in control of his church. He will build it. He will protect it. And he is working for our good. But then we see Jesus walking in the midst of the lampstands. It's interesting. In that opening vision of Jesus in chapter 1, he's standing in the midst of the lampstands. And then this intensifies that first vision. He is walking in the midst of the lampstands, the churches. We need to let that soak in. Jesus is walking in the midst of the church. He is with his people individually always, but there is something unique about his presence among us when we gather together to worship him. It's it's like something that you can't replicate by yourself. This is a special time. It's a sacred gathering. Jesus walking among the lampstands speaks of both his intricate knowledge and his intimate presence. It fills you with this healthy fear. The God of the universe is here walking in our midst. It fills you with this special this fear that makes you want to fall on your face and worship Him, but at the same time it fills you with awestruck adoration that makes you want to draw near to Him. The image is like a tender shepherd walking among His flock. He knows our needs. He's in our midst. He's walking in the midst of the church. I don't know about you, but this image makes me want to gather reverently to gather frequently. Jesus is working in behalf of the church and he's walking in the midst of the church. And then in verse 2, Jesus begins to officially commend the church in Ephesus. He starts out, I know your works. This expression is used in every single one of the letters in some form or other. We hear Jesus saying over and over again, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. And for the church in Ephesus, it means that he's fully aware of all that they are doing in response to their salvation. He is fully aware. Nothing escapes his notice. It's all about what they do in his name to honor him and to serve him. And there are two areas in particular that he highlights. First, he commends their toil. And the word toil is elsewhere translated hard work. It refers to something strenuous or exhausting. It's like how many of you may have felt many times this winter shoveling snow all day long. It's strenuous, exhausting. It's toil. 
I remember growing up, I always thought to myself, March, in like a lion, out like a lamb. And then ever since I moved to Chicago, it's like, March, in like a lion, out like a lion. It's just, it's toil, it's toil, it's exhausting. But what did the church in Ephesus toil for? The second half of the verse 2 elaborates. They could not bear with those who are evil, but tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, they toiled for the truth. What seems to have taken place is that false teachers, probably the group called the Nicolaitans, which he mentions in verse 6, had come into the church and tried to take over, and they had called themselves apostles. And sometimes these people were after money. They just wanted donations. And other times they were after adherence, the pride of having followers. I think it's interesting. We see in Acts chapter 20, this is years before, years before in Acts chapter 20, Paul had gathered together the elders of that church, the church in Ephesus. He gathered them together, and this is right before Paul was sent to prison in Rome. And we don't hear anything more from him. He gathers the elders together of the church in Ephesus, and this is his final charge in chapter 20. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Listen to this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And this is exactly what had happened. This was fulfilled in their lifetime. The church in Ephesus was alert. They were ready. This group comes in claiming to be apostles. And what do you do? There's no institutions like Moody Bible Institute or or Trinity. There's no accreditation. There's no one that you can call and say, are these guys legit? So what do you do? They tested them. They probably searched the scriptures. I'm sure they searched the scriptures. They probably observed their conduct and found them to be false. And I'm sure it was not an easy process. That's why Jesus said they toiled. It was strenuous. It would have taken much less time and much less energy just to kind of be lax about it. But here's the key. They valued the truth enough to toil for it. They valued the truth enough to toil for it. And I want to camp on this for a second because I think it's supposed to be an example for us. It's supposed to be a challenge for us. How hard are we willing to work to know the truth? This applies to us as a church. I love what the Bible says about the Berean church in Acts 17.11. It says, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They heard something and examined the scriptures. And I just want to encourage us when we hear a message from this pulpit, when we hear a message on the radio, when we see a message on TV, 
that we do well to examine the scriptures and say, is this so? Is this so? And I just want to follow Jesus' example and commend this church because right away, when I started coming here a few years ago, right away I noticed there is a hunger for the Word in this church. There is a love for the Word. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm honored to be part of a church like that. But it also applies to us in our own individual lives. How hard are we willing to work to know the truth? How hard are we willing to work to know the truth? It's hard work to wake up earlier and get into the Word. It's hard work to guard that time. It's easy to read a passage of Scripture and close the Bible without seeking to truly understand what it means. It's hard work to dig into it, to pray over it, to read it multiple times, to consult other passages of Scripture. It's hard work. Lisa often reminds me of the the quote by Beth Moore, which says, we have to let the truth scream louder than the lies that have infected us. It's hard work to detect these lies in our heart, to dig them out and to memorize Scripture, to fight them over and over and over again. And once you've kind of conquered one, another one comes up and you just keep fighting the lies. And it's hard work. It's hard work to, to guard God's Word in our heart. It's hard. How hard are we willing to work to know the truth? And I don't want to give you the impression that we're on our own in this. Colossians 1.29 says this. This is Paul speaking. He says, For this I toil. For this I toil. And that's our same word. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. It's God's power that helps us work hard. And I don't want to give the impression that we do this out of guilt. I don't think guilt will get us there. Guilt just kind of makes us shrink back and feel bad. It's about God's grace. It starts with coming to Him day in and day out and saying, God, I need your help with this. I need your power and I need your grace to work hard at knowing the truth. And when I get off track, I need your grace to get back on. Are we willing? Are we willing to toil for the truth? For the church in Ephesus, Christ command, he commends their toil. Secondly, he commends their patient endurance. Verse 3 explains, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. What is it that they are enduring? There was opposition from almost every angle in the ancient city of Ephesus. First, there was a strong cult following of the Greek goddess called Artemis. They built a temple for Artemis. They were so devoted to Artemis that they built a temple for her that became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest building in the world at this time. It was four times bigger than the Parthenon. Four times bigger, and it was made completely out of marble. It was home for literally thousands of priests. That's how big it was. Thousands. 
And when Paul originally went to Ephesus in Acts 19, it was this cult, the cult of Artemis, that created this massive, violent riot against him. That's the context that this church is in. These people were chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what they're up against. And then second, there is this pervasive influence of the magic arts all throughout the city. It's interesting, we see in Acts 19, that when a small group of believers came to trust Christ and to see Him as the one true God, they took the magic items that they had, the books, and went and burned them. And it said it was worth 50,000 shekels of silver, which in today's currency is $6 million. That's how much magic material this small group of believers had. And they burned the books. So magic arts was pervasive in the city of Ephesus. And then thirdly, right before this letter was written, Ephesus had been named the guardian of emperor worship. And emperor worship was the most important thing in Rome at this time. And so if the church in Ephesus refused to take part in these practices, there would be severe repercussions. There was a very real threat of physical danger. Lives were in danger. And they faced economic deprivation. Losing jobs. Losing customers. In order to get a job during this time, you had to be part of a trade guild. And in order to be a, a part of a trade guild, you had to make sacrifices to idols. And so if they were unwilling, how would they find a job? And they also faced social rejection. The pervasive popular belief during this time was that if someone refused to make sacrifices to idols, that the gods would bring punishment upon the country as a whole. Can you imagine that? Imagine friends and family thinking that you are the one to blame for the bad things happening in the country. You're the one to blame for the downfall of Rome. Imagine not being able to find a job to feed your family. Imagine hearing of Christians being exiled and executed in other parts of the country. But the church in Ephesus endured. It says they did not grow weary. We don't get the sense that they did it begrudgingly or complaining. They endured patiently. And this is a challenge for us. This is, a, this is an example for us. As a church, they did not give in to the tremendous pressure to compromise their faith. We don't face the same level of persecution, but opportunities to compromise our faith abound in this world. There's a very real temptation out there to compromise our faith for a job, for a pay raise, for a relationship, or even just to avoid discomfort. But I think four words in verse 3 make all the difference. Jesus says, For my name's sake. What we learn from the church in Ephesus is that honoring Christ comes before money and security, acceptance and approval, comfort and safety. And that's the key to enduring. I just I want us to see that the church in Ephesus is made up of believing people, real Christians, that, that we would respect, committed to the truth, exhausting themselves for the truth. They would probably affirm every element of the EFCA statement for, of faith. 
and persevering patiently under tremendous pressure. For all intents and purposes, they appeared to have everything all together, but something was missing. And this is what we turn to in verses 4 through 7. We read, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In their journey as a church, Ephesus had been doing this, doing that, committed to this, active in that, and all the while, they had not noticed what they were missing. So Jesus stops them in their tracks and tells them, you have abandoned the love you had at first. And at this point, I imagine a silence falling over the church as they read this. I don't think they read the next words right away. They had been going through the motions in their Christian faith. Mechanical, routine. Somewhere along the line, their heart had ceased to be in it. Joyful service had given way to dutiful obedience. And it's serious. It's dire. It's not like one of those reviews that we have where, where a five is like an excellent and a four is good and three is satisfactory. And Jesus is saying, well, I gave you all fives, but one four. One four. There's one little thing that you need to improve on. It's not that. It's very serious. Their very existence as a church is at stake. He says, if you, if you don't change, I'll remove your lampstand. And that means they'll cease to exist as a church. Not that they'll lose their salvation, but their status as a church will be no longer. And what the terrifying thing is, is that this can happen and a church can never even know it. Jesus is saying this is so serious. This is so important that if you're losing your love, you might as well close the doors to the church because you're wasting your time without love Without love, the church is endangered. So what does it mean that they had abandoned their first love? A few things to notice. It doesn't specify who it is they had neglected to love. Notice that. This is you abandoned the love you had at first. And so some scholars say it's definitely talking about their love for God. And then other scholars say it's definitely talking about their love for one another. But I think the best solution is that it's talking about both. That's what makes sense to me. Because we see in Scripture that these two kinds of love are intricately tied to one another. 1 John 4.21 says this, And this is the command we have from Him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. See how they're tied together? And then, of course, in, in Mark 12, verses 29 through 31, Jesus is talking about the great command. And he says, the most important command is this. Mark chapter 12. I'll read it to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment. Notice that. Singular. Used together. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, if our love for God has lessened, it'll show up in our love for one another. And if, our, if we're struggling in our love for one another, it points to something about our relationship with God. They're just intricately tied up to one another. And so they had lost that love. But notice that it doesn't say that they abandoned their love entirely. Notice what it says. It says they abandoned the love that they had at first. This means that their love was no longer what it once was. It wasn't gone, but it had faded. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. He says your love is not as strong as it used to be. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that just honestly convicting? And that's why in the very next verse, Jesus says, remember. Because this is the key. Remember. And what that's calling us to is this kind of self-examination. Coming before the Lord and looking down, looking down the road of our salvation, the history of our walk with Him, and asking ourselves that hard question. Is my love for God as strong as it's ever been? Is my love for others as strong as it's ever been? Or has it faded? Has it lessened? If my Christian walk was a graph, has it started to go down? That's challenging. And I think we can become so deceived. We're self-deceived because we're just going through the motions, doing this and doing that and doing this. And we can never even notice that all the while we're neglecting the most important thing. So that's why Jesus says, remember, remember, take time for self-examination, self-reflection. See if that graph has started to go down. And honestly, I just, I'm so humbled to be preaching this text today because this, these words have really challenged me this week. And I just, honestly, I, I do feel, I do feel that my love isn't as strong as it has been. And that's what's been so challenging to me this week. And, and, and I want to be very careful. I want to be very clear. Because we kind of go through seasons of life. And there are times when the feelings just aren't there as much. And that's when God is calling us just to stick it out. And in fact, those are times when our love can grow. Because we're committed to Him regardless of feeling. But it, it's, it's talking about a bigger picture. It's talking about are we neglecting our relationship with Him? And I I just have to say, I spend time with the Lord every day. But if it starts to become just prayers about, Lord, help me with this, help me with this, help me with this. I I, I see these needs around me. Help with this, help with this, help with this. And somewhere along there, there's great potential for just the relationship component to just be neglected. And I think if we're honest... In this room, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think it's so easy to be so caught up doing things for God that we forget about loving Him. 
So that's why he says, repent and, and do the works you did at first. I love that. I love it because it's, it's not saying wait for a feeling to come back. Wait for a feeling to come back and then just go with that. It's saying, no, get right on this and be proactive about in, intentionally intentionally doing acts of love towards God and towards one another and, and love will follow them. But don't wait. Repent and do the works you did at first. So what kind of works are we talking about here? Works that show our love for God and our love for one another. And I think it starts with this. I think, I think if, if you hear something else, I want, I want you to remember this. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. This is where it starts. Coming before Him and just opening ourselves up to His love, to receiving His love. It's so interesting. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 says he gets on his knees. He bows before the Lord. Back in those days, the posture to prayer was standing up with your arms raised. But Paul says, I get on my knees and I ask that your church would know the love of Christ. He's talking about believers. And he's saying, oh, I pray that you know the love of Christ. Because that's where this starts. Receiving his love. And I think, I think what I want to encourage you to do is to rehearse the gospel in your mind. There is no greater expression of love than that. This is how we know love, that he gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. And so I want to encourage you to just rehearse the truth of the gospel in your mind and to just let that love, let that love just strike you afresh that we were so dead in our sin. If we think that he forgave us of these decent, respectable sins, maybe our love for him will be kind of mediocre. But if we realize just how much, how much our behavior was a rejection to everything he is, and yet, and yet, he, he sent his only son who voluntarily gave his life so that we would not be left in that rejection. But that his, his wrath would be just fully put on his son so that when we come to him by faith, we might, we might have his love and life everlasting. It's incredible. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross and the pain of the cross that was immense, but that he endured the Father's wrath that was for us. You see, justice demanded that we be punished, and God is a just God. So punishment had to take place, but he poured it on his Son. Man, if we could just never take these truths for granted. Let them strike you afresh, and I just got to encourage you that if you look down the line, if you look at your spiritual history and you say, you know, I just don't think that I've ever loved God. Maybe it has always just been about emotions. Maybe it's just been like a relationship you put in your back pocket just in case it's true. And if that's you, I just encourage you. I encourage you 
you can come to Christ today. You can come to Him. It's it's not just about agreeing to a set of truths. It's about coming to a person, fully God, fully human, who gave Himself for you, that you might have utter forgiveness and life everlasting. It's also about acts of love towards God, about spending time with Him. Spending time with Him. Imagine if I came home from work every day and Lisa's like, waiting for me in the kitchen. And I, <laughs> that's the first room in our house, so. Um, and she's just waiting for me. It, and, and I don't even acknowledge her. I just get right to work. I go and, and I take out the trash and fix things. Uh, you can imagine that. And I'm busy doing this, busy doing that, busy doing this, busy doing that. And then the next day, the same thing. She's waiting for me. I don't even acknowledge her. I just get busy doing things for her, doing things for her day in and day out. Don't even acknowledge her. Just go back in, doing things for her, running around the house. And as ridiculous as that sounds, sometimes that reflects our relationship with God. Just doing things for Him. And at some point, Lisa would have to say, Enough! Sit with me. Sit with me. I think Christ is calling us to that. Starting this Wednesday will be Lent. And, you know... There's different views of Lent out there. Different churches are involved in it. And I just want to encourage us to see this as an opportunity to spend time with the Lord. To seize these 40 days. And, and to really let it bring something new into your life as far as time with God. Lingering with Him. And what I want to encourage you to do is look at your life. Look at something you can take out of your life. And fill that space with time with God. Just lingering with Him. And it might be a meal once a week that just gives you that extra half hour with Him. It might be a, a, a TV show once a week. It, it's, not, it's not getting credit with God. It's not just the holiness of self-deprivation. It's just setting aside time to be with Him. It might be Facebook. It, for me, once a week, about once a week, I'll, I'll get up after dinner and I'll sit down on the couch and I'll start looking at uh, Twitter articles, and then all of a sudden, I look at another and another and another, and a half hour has gone by. And for during Lent, I'm just going to not be on Twitter. I'm going to take that half hour after dinner once a week and just spend extra time with God, just lingering with Him, talking with Him through prayer, and hearing Him speak to us through His Word. I love what John Jonathan Edwards says. He says, The function of Scripture is like the dual function of the sunlight. Yes, it brings light to our minds, but it also brings warmth to our hearts. Just letting Scripture warm our hearts in our relationship with God. And I also want to encourage everybody during these 40 days, I want to encourage you to think about the Gospel every day. Every day for 40 days to thank God for everything that happened in Jesus' life death and resurrection and everything that we have as a result of that all that we have that relationship that peace that hope that joy finding some other some different aspect to thank God for about Jesus' death every day and resurrection and I tell you what that will spark a renewal of love in your relationship with him and you will be more ready for Easter for resurrection day 
than you've ever been before. Think, think about the gospel every day. And then when that love for God develops, our love for one another will flow out of that. I want to conclude with this. I want to invite the band to come forward. I want to conclude with this. Jesus in this passage encourages us to spend time in self-examination. He says, remember, reflect. And so that's, what, that's how I want to, to close this section today. I want to give you three questions to reflect on. Three ways that you can just examine yourself before the Lord. That you can say like Psalm 139, Search me, O Lord, and know my ways. So here's three questions. To just advance me playing some music. Just spend some time with God on these. Number one, have I been going through the motions in any area of my walk with God? Number two, how can I keep my love for God alive and growing? And number three, who do I need to show more Christ-like love towards? I just want to give you time to spend time with the Lord right now, just mulling over this passage, mulling over these questions. And after you've had a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion together, which is the greatest way to remember the gospel. I'll give you some time here. I'm going to open us in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you don't just let us drift off into lovelessness, but that you would love us enough to confront us and say, you have abandoned the love you had at first, and that you would humbly call us back to repent and do the things we did at first. I just, I pray. I pray that our love for you would be alive and beaming, just growing stronger and stronger. God, I pray that you would help us to not neglect this most important thing and that we would just bask in you, enjoy you, and all the love that you have shown. In Jesus' name, amen. We give you a few minutes.